We believe life can be a journey toward wholeness, toward reconnecting with who we are authentically meant to be. We walk this path of growth and discovery with our children, with our partners, within ourselves. These are the stories of what's possible. These are the conversations that light the way. Welcome to Soul Path Parenting. Welcome to Soul Path Parenting. I'm your host, Lauren Colonnais Keck, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Chrissy Positek, parent coach, wilderness therapist, and author of Brave Parenting, a Buddhist-inspired guide to raising emotionally resilient children, as well as two other books, The Parallel Process and Brave Teaching. Welcome, Chrissy. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. I am so excited to talk with you today. I recently finished reading Brave Parenting, and I loved it so much. I found it so incredibly helpful in helping me get more clear about what my goal is as a parent and how to try to navigate the kind of tightrope between these various polarities. I'm thinking of things like control or neglect or, you know, being the helicopter parent or the laissez-faire permissive parent. There are these kind of polarities in parenting that I try to coach parents on. So I'm a parenting coach. You all know that. And um, I try to guide parents through this. And I thought your book was so incredibly helpful. I'm excited to recommend it to all of my clients. One of the first things I would love to talk with you about that I appreciated so much was how you talk about anxiety in the book. A lot of people are dealing with anxiety. Parents have anxiety. Children are having anxiety. Could you start out by speaking a little bit to anxiety? Absolutely. And thank you so much. I'm, I'm so happy to hear you resonated with the book. Yeah. Anxiety is probably the number one issue, right? that I, mm-hmm. I would say I come across and my, in my parent coaching. And really what that's about is we have an underlying anxiety, right? Let's face it, we all do, right? Whether you have a child mm-hmm. on a mainstream path and checking the boxes or whatever that means, but moving forward and, and you know, without any huge challenges, or you have a child on a treatment path, or really struggling or having a diagnosis or some type of setback, there's anxiety, right? And I what I've really uncovered in my work, and just to briefly share that my background's in wilderness therapy. So I worked with adolescents in a wilderness setting, both clinical and at-risk youth. And what I really found is that at a core, core place, we have the parent, sorry, in the parent-child relationship, we're enmeshed. And what enmeshed means is that our identity, right, our sort of, yeah, identity is merged with our child's identity, right? And this merging, Mm -hmm. right, gets confusing. And so our child's successes feel like our successes. Our child's failures feel like our failures. We start to feel responsible for their problems. We feel responsible for their emotions. We feel responsible for their discomfort. And some of this is, you know, goes right back to having babies and toddlers, right? I mean, we want to soothe Mm -hmm. their crying. We want to cheer them up. You know, to a certain degree, we did do what the term that now is used is co-regulation, right? We had to regulate. Mm -hmm. We felt that it was our responsibility to regulate babies and toddlers. However, I work with, you know, 12 years old, 15, 17, 21 parents. I work with the parents of these ages and parents are still co-regulating. They're, you know, I just talked to a parent the other day and the child's 20 and he calls nine times a day with every problem. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I I know I'm laughing and, and I probably shouldn't be. It's not a laugh of judgment. No, so. I, I, no. And it is. The point is these habits happen, right? We fall into mm-hmm. these habits and I'm not saying it with judgment either. This is a child that struggles. And, but, but again, we have to look at our patterns and we have to look at our habits and we have to 
question it. And we have to, is this healthy for me? Is this healthy for my child? And how do we promote self-regulation? How do we promote individuation? How do we encourage kids to learn to self-soothe and sit with discomfort? So in my wilderness work, you know, a lot of it is how children can learn to sit and be with discomfort. And the real message is all feelings are okay. Right. If we, you know, and that's really the Mm -hmm. emphasis of, of the wilderness. And I'll just share that briefly because that translates to my parent coaching, which translates to how I focus on anxiety. So I'm getting to your question here, but the, yes, no. And I love it. I love hearing more about your background. I probably skipped the question of tell me more about how you got to where you are. It, It all comes out. So, so yeah. So in the wilderness setting, you know, when kids struggle, you know, the, the message is all feelings are okay. So if you're sad, that's okay. If you're anxious, that's okay. If you're angry, that's okay. In fact, we want to pull up a front seat and hold space and validate and normalize and lean into the feeling, but we're not fixing and changing it. Right. Mm -hmm. We're, we're, wow, that is sad. That is frustrating. You know, I can, I can see that that would provoke anxiety, you know? And so we're, this validation, this normalization of emotions actually helps them move. It, it allows us to, you know, I think of emotions like a river, right? It allows the currents to keep moving, right? Versus damming the river where we're like, I can't feel this. I have to control it. How do I fix it? How do I get out of it? How do I escape? Right? And they look for mom and dad to fix it mm-hmm. or they look for the exit. So we want to teach children how to go through an entire emotion from start to finish and learn to what I what I call process feelings, right? I mean, isn't that we want our kids, if they're emotionally healthy, right? We don't want them happy. We want them emotionally healthy because we want, mm-hmm. which means we want them to be able to experience all their emotions because guess what? We're human and we're going to have all feelings in our lifetime or even in one day, <laughs> right? Let's face it. <laughs> yes. So we need to, if we want to yep. equip our children, we need to let them be with all feelings. And so we need to allow that whole process from start to finish of processing an emotion. And, you know, frankly, we don't teach this in our culture. You know, if we fix, right. we teach fixing, changing, right? And, and, and so as I did this wilderness work, I saw, wow, this is so markedly different from mainstream culture that we value feelings, we lean into feelings. And then the, the second piece of it is that we hold them accountable for behavior. So say you're of anxiety and you refuse to hike that day. Do you, you know, we might say anxiety is totally okay and important and let's explore that. And it's okay to feel that in your body, but it's not okay to not hike. And if you choose mm-hmm. to not hike, you know, these are some of the consequences, right? The group group will be held back. You may not be moving forward in your program, right? Because there's like a curriculum the kids do and, and et cetera, et cetera. So there's accountability for behaviors. And if you think about it, what do we do in our culture today? We do the opposite. Mm-hmm. We fix the feeling and maybe overlook accountability because he had such a bad day mm-hmm. and maybe he swore at mom and dad and maybe he threw his dinner on the floor or whatever it is, we might say, oh, we had such a bad day and we just clean it up. It's really interesting. So we actually, I think, create delayed maturation and even dependency on us, on mom and dad to regulate, which is why these children are having this delayed maturation moving forward, right? And so right. So the picture that I'm trying to give you is that I saw how powerful it is to teach this emotional regulation. And then I was like, hmm, let's, this is what I want to bring into my parent coaching is this, what I think is probably the number one issue, right? Is, is how do we raise children for emotional health so they can be equipped to thrive in the world? And so that means we need to let them feel, we need to let them struggle. We need to hold space. We need to hold them accountable, right? And so then the mm-hmm. next piece of that is, how do I work on myself? Yes. Right? Yes. Absolutely. Well, and actually right there, I was thinking while you were talking and I want to interject to this here, I was thinking about my own parenting journey and what I wasn't taught as a child and what I was taught unintentionally, right? So my parents didn't intentionally teach me that feelings are terrifying and we need to fix them immediately. That wasn't their goal. But 
the way they were reacting internally to their own feelings and the way they externally reacted to mine co-created this experience I had that led to me being a young mother who on some level would panic when my babies cried and feel like my job was to stop the crying. Ah, they're crying. Brain is panicking. Must find a way to stop the crying. And then as they... and. It would have been more ideal. And I know this now from the work that I have done. If I had been a more maturely developed self-regulator who could have taken a deep breath and been grateful that my baby was crying because that's how they communicate and responded to the baby from a calm place in my body and addressed the crying, because there, there is some level of truth to the fact that when an infant is crying we want to figure out why and we want to do something about it, right? Yeah. So that part is okay. But the fact that I would panic and try to fix the crying and that and our infants are emotionally co-regulating off of our bodies and sensing our like sensing how mom's reacting to this. You know, so then when my infants transitioned into toddlers who were testing boundaries and you know, things like that. And I was panicking about trying to get them to behave. And we had kind of a little disaster. And then I found Dr. Shafali in Conscious Parenting, which was part of what helped me transition through that. But what I love about what you were speaking to was this absolute need for us to mature alongside of our kids. So the way I reacted to an infant is not appropriate with a 12-year-old, right? And this is part of what your work so beautifully addresses with practical examples and explanations. And so I just love all of that. So yes, so continue with what you were saying. <laughs> no, I think those are such a good example. And thank you for sharing that about your journey. And I would say it's the same for myself. You know, I mean, I, I taught this. I was a professional before I was a parent. I ran parent workshops. I worked in the wilderness. But when I became a mom, right? It's our own survival strategies um, <clears throat> take mm -hmm. over. You know, we can be as smart as we want to be, but if we're not <laughs> mature, if we haven't learned our own self-regulation, if we haven't integrated our, you know, shadows or wounds or whatever words you want to use, it's going to come out. And I feel like mm -hmm. for myself, really, and, and this is what I talk about in Brave Parenting, is when my second child was seven months, so my first was I think just over three, we, um, mm -hmm. you know, the first, whatever, six, seven months of the second child is, is challenging. And by seven months, I think I was hitting a level of exhaustion and we were, it was summer, we were traveling and sort of visiting family to, you know, see our new children or at least our new baby. Mm -hmm. And of course, children don't sleep as well when you're traveling. And right. I just crossed some threshold where I I just stopped sleeping because my youngest was getting, you know, up in the middle of the night, the seven month old, and then the mm -hmm. three year old was up by five. And then we were going all day. And I just um, crossed some threshold where I literally forgot how to sleep. You know, it was just mm -hmm. I, I was so in overdrive, so and 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 anxiety, you know, very. And then I had so much anxiety mm -hmm. about sleep, and which interfered with my ability to sleep. And so I kind of, you know, I had a bit of a crisis, I, you know, I would say, and, um, you know, certainly was offered medication and I, I'm not, you know, nothing against medication. I did use it for a short period mm -hmm. of time, but it, it just didn't feel to me like the solution. And, and it was more of a, mm -hmm. you know, temporary help or support, but, um, I landed on meditation you know, I literally walked into the mm -hmm. local Shambhala Center here in Vermont, and it was interesting. Uh, there was a quote on the wall right as I walked in, and I was a complete zombie. You know, I'd had very little sleep <laughs> and mm -hmm. kind of was at the end of my rope. And I walked in, and there was a quote on the wall that said, chaos is very good news. <laughs> and I was like, that quote's insane because how is that good news, right? Because I was fixed into right? this idea that I'm supposed to be together, I'm supposed to be this together mm -hmm. mom and have it present well and have everything under control, which is a thousand percent not right. That's all my conditioning, right? My conditioning mm -hmm. is 
all of that, right? And no, you know, no, not no vulnerability, because I think I'm a vulnerable person, but just that together feeling like I should have been. And so, um, so anyway, it started this journey and this process of me learning to be with chaos and discomfort and uncertainty and unknown. Like, I don't know if I'll sleep tonight. And because that's mm-hmm. how I sort of weaned off my sleep meds and, and, and I really embraced some of the Buddhist uh, teachings and really they helped me very, very much in being with the unknown, being with uncertainty, being with discomfort, allowing myself to feel anxiety. And of course, little did I know all of this started to trickle into my parent coaching because what are parents feeling? Anxiety. They're feeling, they're struggling yes. with the unknown. They're struggling with uncertainty, especially if you have a child with a diagnosis or behavioral issue or a learning issue or social, they're not getting along socially. You know, I mean, all of this creates so much anxiety for parents. And what do they tend to do? They tend to go into over-functioning for their child, right? The parent over-functions mm-hmm. and then the child under-functions. And we're creating this enmeshed or codependent pattern. And really the undercurrent mm-hmm. of it all is anxiety, right? Just like you were saying with your with your yes. baby crying, right? If, if we're not showing up right. regulated, if we're not showing up with space for struggle and challenge and a sort of an equanimity, right? A calm equanimity or presence. Mm-hmm. If we're not showing up mm-hmm. with that, our children feel it. And we're sort of indicating it's not okay for them to struggle. It's not okay for them to have a setback. It's not okay. We have to go into our helicoptering, our fixing. And sort of, we're also also saying you're not capable. You, you can't do it on your own. You need right. me to do it. So, so again, I don't, I'm not saying any of this to judge parents. I, I say this because these are the unconscious messages we send. And so we have to go back to ourself and, and really work on our self-regulation, which for at least for anxiety, I found a lot of um, value in these Buddhist teachings. Yes. So beautiful. I, I appreciate all of that so much. And several different questions are popping up for me, and I would be curious to hear how you would answer them. One is, since you primarily work with teens and older children, and you're very clear about how important it is to let them solve their own problems. And in reading Brave Parenting, which I'm so inspired by and is so excited that I have gotten to know you and read the book, I'm really thinking more consciously about every time I have the temptation still to interfere rather than be present, witness, offer advice if it's asked. I mean, I think you're you pointing out to all of us parents that unsolicited advice is rarely well received, right? By anyone, (laughs) adults, children, unsolicited advice is not the wisest thing. And there could be exceptions. There's always exceptions, right? But what I'm thinking about is the younger our kids are, because I'm also, I also have these other thoughts swirling around in my head about modeling. Modeling is one of the things that I teach the parents that I work with that we need to model for our children. You know, I I think it's important for our children to actually see us doing things and then the children can learn by watching us and then do the things. So how would you distinguish modeling from overstepping, interfering, taking over, solving their problems? I'd be curious to hear you speak to that. Does that question make sense? Yeah, and maybe I can answer with a story too, because I think sometimes stories are helpful. And I can't remember yes. if the story was in the book, but this is a, a story with my four when my child was then four. So sometimes it's I've got mm-hmm. you know I do have more experience parent coaching, you know, preteens and up. But I obviously um, it's good to hear the stories of younger kids. And um, yeah, so it was really interesting. She was four, and she was came home from, I guess, preschool at that time. And she said, mommy, I'm worried. Mm-hmm. And I said, what are you worried about, sweetie? And she said, I don't know. I'm just worried. And so, you know, of course I was concerned and wondered, 
of course my mind's racing for what is she, what is she worried about? What happened? Right. You know, mm-hmm. is it, did she mm-hmm. experience um, something at school? Did, um, you know, was someone bullied or mistreated or, you know, everything's racing through my mind. Right. And, she, but she mm-hmm. didn't know, you know, she didn't have a, an answer. And, and again, I'll, I thought that was so brilliant because we think you always have to have a reason, but m- emotions right. move through the body. Right. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. you know, some of us are more feelers than others, but I mean, we all have feelings. And so, mm-hmm. so anyway, I guess my urge was to whatever, put on her favorite show and make her a snack, right? Just smooth it right over. Mm-hmm. Right. She got home from school. Yes, smooth it. it right yes. over. Uh-huh. Right. And uh-huh. I stopped myself. And I think this was when I was literally writing this book. And I stopped mm-hmm. myself and I was like, sweetie, worry's okay. Worry is, I get worried and it's just a feeling moving through the body. And it's it's okay to feel that. So just give, like, tell your body it's okay to feel that. Or open your heart to the feeling. Or, you know, I use different language. Like, welcome the feeling. And mm-hmm. I go feeling, you know, worried is just like, happy, sad, mad, right? They're just feelings. They're not good or bad. And she sort of like, you know, took that in and then moved on. But then like the next day or two days later, mom, I'm worried. And I said, what are you worried about, sweetie? I don't know. So I kind of did the same response, you know, Mm -hmm. just held her, normalized it, welcomed it. Then Literally, this went on for about two weeks. So like two days later, mom, I'm worried. And I said, what are you mad about? I don't know. And that her tone started to get more agitated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know where this is going, you guys. So I'm just a parent applying my same teachings to my children. And I, you know, and this is not a quick fix. So the other thing I'm just going to put out there, this is not a quick fix. So I say, okay, Mm -hmm. honey. And again, I pulled her on my lap and I just said, I get worried too. It's totally okay to feel it. Why don't you welcome the feeling? You know, I sort of did the same. Is there anything you can do for yourself? Is anything I can? And then I even said, is there anything I can do for you? So I didn't swoop in mm-hmm. with anything I asked. And she said, no, thank you. I remember. And I was like, okay. So this went on for <laughs> every other day, I would say for about two weeks. And even her sister's like, she's worried again. And um, <laughs> so then one day in the car, we were like driving somewhere and she goes, mom, I'm worried, but I know it's okay. <laughs> and I like started like tearing up because she saw uh-huh. her problem. She met yeah. her negative emotion with love or acceptance. I mean, isn't that what mm-hmm. we're all trying to do as adults today is to meet mm-hmm. our everything in our experience with love and acceptance rather than rejection, right? Every time we reject a part of ourselves, that's bad. Something's wrong with me, right? I'm not normal, Mm -hmm. right? We've internalized a certain degree of shame or self-loathing, right? Or or Mm self-criticism, right? And so I guess hopefully I'm answering your question of modeling, like how can we model all feelings are okay and you're okay, not all behaviors are okay, right? So we can get into that, right? It's not okay to right, right. throw something at someone or sw- swear at your parent or whatever. Um, but all you are okay. The feeling is okay. And, you know, that truthfully, I never had that, right? In my, in my childhood, you know, I had parents mm-hmm. who had good boundaries and I had parents who were who provided for me, but there was zero talk of feelings, zero. And I was a very empathic Mm -hmm. feeler kid. And I just Mm -hmm. never had it mirrored back. I never had it validated. I never had it accepted. I never really had it even acknowledged. And so that's sort of been my journey. And so I think that for our to teach this to children, I mean, at young ages, and it doesn't mean magically things are better for her, but, but but there's this aligning with herself, right? That's my hope is that we can model to children. How can they align with who they are rather than reject who they are? Yes. Yes. I resonate with all of that. It's so beautiful. And what I love about what you said and how you answered that question is your acknowledgement that this isn't a quick fix. This isn't, you know, when we're, when we're raising children, when we're thinking about the long game, 
we need to be thinking, what am I modeling in this moment on multiple layers? You know, if our child is struggling to tie their shoe and we're afraid that they're going to be embarrassed at kindergarten because they're going to be the only kid in kindergarten who can't tie their shoe. So we're perceiving the problem in that moment as ability to tie a shoe. And we think I've got to help them tie the shoe. Let me get a practice shoe. Let me do it this way. Let me Google. There's, you know, (laughs) YouTube videos, the easy trick to helping kids tie their shoe. And if all we're focusing on is the shoe tying and we're not aware because my conscious parenting program tries to help parents become consciously aware of the multiple layers going on there. The shoe tying on the surface is real. It's a real thing that's happening. And there's a layer of modeling how we handle problems. There's a layer of modeling how we handle a skills gap. Do we panic and do everything in our power to to close that skill gap immediately? Are we trying to avoid embarrassment in kindergarten when this is the only one who can't tie the shoes? Do we run out and buy Velcro shoes because we just can't handle it? Or have we learned as the adults to breathe, to regulate ourselves, to accept the uncertainty and the unpredictability of life? We didn't know that our child was going to be the child who couldn't tie their shoe in kindergarten. And maybe they're the only one and maybe they're not in that situation. And is tying shoes a life or death situation in that moment? Well, if we're unconsciously panicking about it, it could feel that way. If we're consciously breathing and regulating, we know it's not life or death. So then we can model empathy. We can acknowledge the feelings. Oh, sweetie, this is frustrating. If the child comes home and says, I'm embarrassed because everyone else tied their shoes today and I didn't. We can, as you help suggest in your book, and you give beautiful, practical stories and examples of parents engaging this way, we can listen, we can empathize, we can say, that's hard. Everyone else tied their shoes and you didn't. Oh, I've had experiences like that in my life where I didn't do the thing that everyone else was doing and it was hard and I'm here for you. What do you want? What do you need? You know, and trying to empower the child while supporting them, while being present, without taking over, without neglecting them. And I I so appreciate you kind of speaking to all of those levels and how it's not a quick answer because it's a complex part of human experience. Yeah. So yeah. Beautiful. And I think what you're naming in that example of tying the shoe is that it's become a it's the parent makes it about themselves. Right. You said they have shame. They have anxiety there because the child, right, is merged with them. They're an extension of me. Mm-hmm. So if my child can't, you know, do their shoe, that looks bad on my child, but then that looks bad on me. And so that's where the parent gets dysregulated or, or has an anxiety spiral or whatever. But so one of the things I teach is what I call healthy separation. We need to have healthy Mm -hmm. separation in the parent-child relationship because the child's experience is not the parent's experience. And we, Mm -hmm. you know, and just to give a metaphor that I, another metaphor I use is I talk about the emotional roller coaster. So say the child's up and having a success, right? Or a breakthrough or, or something. If we're in the emotional roller coaster, then it becomes our success, if the child has a, if the mm. child's going up, and then if the child's going down in the roller coaster, and the child's having a crash, and the child's having a failure, or the child's having a setback, we're having a setback because it's almost mm-hmm. as if we're in the roller coaster car with our child. So life that's happening to the child becomes life that's happening to the parent, and that's actually mm-hmm. why we become controlling. We become controlling mm-hmm. because we feel like we're trapped in that roller coaster car that's going up and down and up and down. And we feel out of control or we feel powerless. And so we get in and we try to control, control, control because we don't want to crash on the next down. But mm-hmm. what I teach is how do we have healthy, healthy separation where we actually step off the roller coaster and we're on solid ground at the, at the base of the roller coaster, right? And we can let our child go up and down and up and down. We can wave to them on a good day and we can wave to them on a bad day. We can show love and support on a success. We can show love and support on a failure. So we're in that place of equanimity. We're in that place of stability, right? If we're reeling because our child's reeling, do you see how we're not in a place of support? 
And so, mm-hmm. and again, a lot of families, especially when the child may have more significant struggle there, I tend to see more enmeshment or more over-involvement or sort of stepping into a higher gear of managing the child. And so with that, the child's life is their life. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of hopefully a helpful metaphor for this, what I call healthy separation, because we need to have it, right? We need to regulate our own emotions. How can we show up even and regulate it even if our child's not, right? How And, and that's, that's right. really how we break enmeshment. We break enmeshment when we feel our feelings, not their feelings, right? Or we have mm-hmm. a sense of, uh, we can have a, you know, it's almost like codependency, right? You think about a codependent relationship, they're merged, right? The, the one feels one person's problems, the other person's problems, one person's emotions, the other person's emotion. But if we moved more toward interdependence, we're able to have that space where you can share, you know, your problem or your feeling, the other can listen. And so that's really, so often we don't think about codependency in the parent-child relationship, but but really it's, everywhere right right it, it's mm-hmm. so prevalent so oh absolutely absolutely and i think there's so much value in recognizing that and then intentionally creating that space and that separation and i love how you talk about parallel paths having we're on our path our child's on their path the paths can be next to each other and we can be a guide for our children without taking over their path and walking their path or dragging them onto our path, right? Because I think of, there's just so many factors that come together to co-create these situations. One of the other things I was thinking about while you were speaking was the idea of expectations. And you talk about expectations in the book and you talk about your time in Africa, which is one of the things I wanted to ask you about as well, the gift of your time in Africa in relation to expectations. Because in my coaching practice, we talk about how most parents unconsciously expect their children to be just like them, to be a little mini me out in the world that is representing them well, that is living up to their dreams and desires and expectations, lived or unlived. You know, you have the the parent who was a great athlete who also wants their child to be a great athlete. And then you have the parent who didn't get to be the great athlete and wants their child to be Mm -hmm. the great athlete. So there's nuances. We don't always want them to be exactly the same as our actual lived life. That could be one version. We also might want them to match our unlived life of our imagination. But on some level, we have this predetermined expectation our children. So could you speak to that and also to your experiences in Africa? Yeah, well, it was interesting. And just writing about anxiety and writing about the Buddhist philosophy and parenting kids. Yeah, absolutely. My my experience of Africa seemed really relevant because one of the things I, f- I found a lot of freedom when I was, I was there for about six months in college. And I found a lot of freedom because in every day we woke up and you never knew what would happen, right? Like you didn't know if Mm-hmm. the buses would run on time. I mean, obviously this is, you know, I'm not ch- labeling it as good or bad. It was just different. And sometimes I remember one mm-hmm. time we went to the bank and like they were out of cash that day or, or, or the lines were long or, or sometimes you can get through to people on the phone and sometimes you can. And, and, and so it was just, and again, maybe things have changed now, but at that time, I just remember you woke up with uh, intentions for the day and you just sort of saw how it unfolded. And there was no, feeling of control or had to be a certain way, or it was just an experience of a day. And I know in the U S we expect everything like clockwork or, or in other Mm -hmm. culture, you know, other uh, more developed countries, we expect things to operate like clockwork and um, we expect, and then if we didn't accomplish our day, we're frustrated. So, so it was just Mm -hmm. a flip for me. And, and I think that that, is so huge. And, and really at the core of that is gratitude, right? I mean, if we woke, if we approach our day with sort of a, the should of how it should be versus just being grateful for what it is, it, it's a very different energy. And, and absolutely that applies to raising children. Um, and so I think that 
you know, it's, it's hard, right? We don't even know we have expectations mm-hmm. of our kids. That's what's, it's so, mm-hmm. it's so embedded. And so one of the things, you know, to answer your question about this, that I would say is I find comes up a lot of my coaching is what I call parenting the child in front of you. Because so often mm-hmm. we're parenting almost ourselves. We have our mm-hmm. own narrative that we're actually projecting on our child. So I'll give you an example. Say, I remember working with this mom and she had a very strict parent. Her mother was very, very strict. Yet she Mm -hmm. remembers the one day her mom really listened to her and really heard her. And she said it changed her whole relationship with her. And she said, I want to be that parent for my child. So Mm -hmm. she, I would say, was more permissive and, and, always believed her child and always listened to him. Meanwhile, he was lying to her a lot and disrespectful, extremely disrespectful. And and I think smoking pot and basically walking on her boundaries every day. And so Mm -hmm. she had this narrative of, and I would talk to her about boundaries and she'd be like, you know, it it just clashed with her mindset because her mindset is that's what my mom did. I don't want to be that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so she had a little reactivity yes. to that. Well, how, how do I do boundaries? And because she was parenting out of this narrative, and I would even say wound, right? There was some wound, there was a lack of, she hadn't fully healed her story. So her story was playing out with her son. But then I said to her, We have to parent the child in front of you. What does the child in front of you need? Does the child in front of you need for you to listen to him and hear him? Or what does he need? And she thought about it. She's like, He's disrespectful. <laughs> right? He needs a boundary. He needs a boundary. He needs a boundary. Right? He needs to be held accountable. Uh-huh. Right? He needs your authority to say you can't walk on me. Mm-hmm. Right? And so mm-hmm. it's it, and and just those shifts and and again, we unconsciously do it. I'm sure I do it. I'm sure you do it, right? Where we have some mm-hmm. story of how right. our parents were, we either want to be like them or we don't want to be like them. So we've made this correction for our children, but our children don't have that story. Our children have a totally different story. Like, like say maybe we didn't have money or right. And so then we want to give our children everything, but they're living in a different story. They weren't raised with the story of not having things. They're raised with the story maybe of having too many things. Exactly. And then, and then we're frustrated when they don't appreciate all those things like we imagine our child self would have, right? Because we're parenting our inner child or our imagined version of ourselves as a child. And I am totally familiar with what you're talking about. You know, we, we grow up without money. And so in our childhood, we feel that lack, we feel this lack of money. And then we want to, we, we're always seeking to bring things into balance, right? So if we experience abundance, sometimes there's actually too much abundance, too much abundance can, can be problematic. If we, if we think about things in terms of polarities, there could be abundance and lack and, being able to be equanimous, equanimity is in the middle, kind of the middle way idea, right? And so if we felt like we grew up in lack, but then as an adult, we achieve abundance because we're seeking balance. And then we give our children abundance. And then we feel frustrated when that becomes their expectation because that's all they've ever known. So now we have the entitled child who expects everything. And we don't know what happened, you know, when, because we're expecting them to embody our childhood experiences, which they never lived through. So yes, I completely understand what you're saying. And I have about five different questions (laughs) (laughs) because I, I just love talking about this stuff. And some of the things you talk about are, um, authentic authority as a parent, you know, in the example you were just speaking to where that parent was unconsciously parenting her own child self in the way that she had most liked and felt like there was a lack of in her story. So this one day her mom listened to her and it was amazing. Whereas most of the time she felt a lack of presence and attention and all of those things. So she wanted to be that version of her mom all the time with her child. And then it results in, I would almost say too much abundance of attention and empathy and not 
balance, which also includes boundaries and authentic authority. So what do you mean when you talk about children respecting their parents more when they embody authentic authority? What does that mean? Absolutely. That's a great question. I think it's something that's really lacking in our parenting culture today. And, you know, and I, I use different terms, but the one I use more recently is I just call parental authority, like stepping into Mm -hmm. our parental authority. So many of us Mm -hmm. are afraid to do that. I mean, even the Mm -hmm. word consequence or accountability, we think is punitive, we think we're power tripping, or we're being abusive or something on some level. But actually, authority is very important. So I like to give the example of, would you rather your child go to a classroom where the teacher's in charge and there's rules and order and routine? Or would you rather you go your child go to a classroom where the kids are in charge and it's more chaotic? Mm-hmm. Well, probably 10 out of 10 parents tell me A. And I, and I say, well, why is that? Because when the teacher has set the tone and their sort of routine and order, their safety. The child comes to class every day and they hang up their coat in the cubby and they walk in and they know what's going to happen. There's predictability. And that actually creates safety and that reduces anxiety. If a child goes to a classroom Mm -hmm. where the teacher lacks authority, the kids are running the show and it's more chaotic every day, you never know what's going to happen. You're on the edge of your seat. And so more energy is available, is, is placed toward probably in your managing your anxiety and less available energy for learning, right? We want to open up our our learning brains, right? Our cognitive process in the classroom, not Mm -hmm. being feeling emotionally unsafe. So if we translate that to the home, right? So I would say 10 out of 10 parents tell me they want their child to go to a classroom where the teacher has authority, but 10 out of 10 Mm -hmm. homes, I would say maybe nine out of 10 homes look like B where the kids are kind of in charge and it's more chaotic in the home, right? Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the authority is questioned, right? Right. What, what that makes me think, and one of the questions on my list of questions for you was, do you think my parenting generation, so I identify with that generation of parents, the generation of parents that are struggling to shift away from child-centered to family-centered, because I, and I feel like it's a reaction of my entire generation of parents. So most of my friends that are parents and that are in my generation felt like they grew up in adult-centered situations where the previous generation parented from an adult-centered place. And a lot of children from that time who are now parents, like the woman you were describing, felt like it was a little too rare that their parents listened to them, heard them, validated them, cared about their feelings, took those feelings into consideration. They felt like there was a lack there. So the pendulum swung from adult-centered to what you could say is the opposite, child-centered. And now all of a sudden we have these families in which, you know, toddlers' feelings seem to be running the show. And, And the parents... They don't want to invalidate the toddler. They don't want to hurt the toddler's feelings too much. They don't want to. So they're struggling because they, the way I talk about it currently, and I love how you were naming too, you know, you wrote this book a little while ago. And so now you're using different language. My language changes and evolves as well as I work through these concepts with people and I land on language that I prefer in the present moment. And I talk a lot with my parents about disentangling things that are tangled up or conflated. So if the way boundaries were enforced in their childhood included violence, so they experienced boundaries as violent and they don't want to be violent. So then they don't have boundaries. They've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And so they don't know how to have boundaries in a nonviolent way. So I guess to come back to my question is, do you, do you see this current parenting trend of child-centered permissiveness as a reaction to past generations of adult-centered, maybe authoritarian parenting? And 
where you and I are trying to bring parents is to kind of a balanced place. What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the, the story that I was giving is that I think we're all parenting our wounds. Mm, Right. mm -hmm, So we're, mm -hmm. we maybe had like, even myself, I would say I had, you know, I had a family that just didn't focus on feelings. Right. So, but, Mm -hmm. but I was also a parent coach. I was also a wilderness therapist before I became a parent. So I didn't do the over um, sort of enmeshment either. Um, but I, I still probably err more on that side of their, of my kids feelings. And sometimes I'll be like, why are my Mm -hmm. kids so disrespectful? And I have to come in with more accountability. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and, and not to say, you know, I've heard myself think it, and maybe I've said it, like I would never have spoken to my parents that way. And that's projection, Mm -hmm. right? They don't, again, they don't know our story. It's projection. Right. We get mad at them like, oh, I can't believe you're not grateful for blah, 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 blah. Right. But we didn't, we didn't, we let them walk on us. Right. We let them mm-hmm. cross our boundaries. So, so anyway, I'm sure I could go in so many directions, but to get back to your question here, <laughs> I think that um, what we're, what, what the biggest piece we're lacking is. So when I give the example of the kids in charge of the classroom, which is translates mm-hmm. to the kids in charge of the home. Um, Mm -hmm. is that there's less safety, emotional safety. Mm -hmm. We think if we give kids what they want, if we give them so much choice for dinner, we let them be on their tech longer or we, because we don't want to make them upset or we let them whatever, right? We're actually reducing safety and creating more anxiety because adults create Mm -hmm. safety. Adults in their, like Mm -hmm. the teacher being in their authority actually creates safety because if a child's disruptive, they may ask them to step outside. The adult is creating the safety in the classroom. So you need authority. Another example is like, you know, I like to give a speed limits, right? So if we didn't have Mm -hmm. laws or I'll just use the example of speed limits, you know, the, the going out on the highway would be a free for all right? It wouldn't be as safe. But, you know, of course, Mm -hmm. people still speed and there's still things that happen. But I would say overall, knowing there is a limit, knowing there's police that do whatever, pull people over if they're speeding too much, there's that accountability actually creates safety for everyone, right? It creates safety Mm -hmm. for the group. And, And so in the home, when parents are in their authority and they're holding rules, and boundaries. They're creating safety for everyone. They're creating civility. There's so many homes where I work with where, I mean, one child's dysregulation, all the other kids are like in their rooms. Do you see? It Mm -hmm. disrupts safety. And we're so focused, oh, my child's upset, but then maybe he's F-bombing the parents or throwing things. Mm -hmm. And do you see it reduces safety? So being the parents being in their authority, and and what I mean by authority is I mean stepping into your sense of um, owning your power and finding Mm -hmm. your voice as a parent where it's firm, but it's kind and it's warm. You're naturally just stepping into an authority where you can have a consequence. You can say, you know, if you choose to continue to behave that way, you know, we will be removing your tech for the night. And so it's choice-based. It's not control-based. We're not saying you're bad. We're not saying um, you disappointed me and I can't believe you did this again and you're in trouble or, right? It's none of that. It's, it's okay to feel upset and we're always here to hear your feeling. I call it yes to feeling, no to behavior. You know, it's okay to yes. be upset and and I'm always here to hear what you're feeling, but it's not okay to take it out on the family or it's not okay to speak those words or it's not okay to throw things or whatever it is. If you choose to do that, we will hold you accountable. And you make a choice based. And what I find is when we make a choice based and the child chooses to say, go to the room and stop, that's self-regulation. If the child chooses Mm -hmm. to continue to throw things, they may have a boundary and lose a privilege, but that's accountability. And accountability Mm -hmm. is it matters. It totally matters. It's just like in the real world. And some parents will tell me, oh, Chrissy, consequences don't work. I took everything away. And I think we have to ask what we mean by consequences working. We're not doing it to change Mm -hmm. the child. We're doing it to uphold the safety of the home. Just like if we said, 
Do consequences work on the highway? Because if we pull someone over for speeding, they might speed 10 more minutes down the road, right? So we're not trying to change Mm -hmm. that driver. What we're trying to do is create more safety on the roads. So we have to think as a family system. So the child may not change with your consequence, but he will be, he or she will be held accountable. And that accountability says we follow rules. You know, there are norms or whatever in our home. And holding children accountable is an important part of being in that collective, right, home environment, household. And so, I don't know, hopefully this is answering your question of like, yes, we need to have the empathy and what I call attunement. It's a big word I use in my book is emotional attunement to our children, but we also need behavioral Mm -hmm. boundaries. And the boundaries are not done in a punitive way. They're not doing in a a power tripping way. They're doing it in a way of accountability, right? Mm -hmm. And that's another thing that I don't think is fully taught today because we're so afraid of, oh, we're hurting our child's feeling, but then kids aren't learning to own their power, right? That they're, they're fully in charge of themselves and they aren't a victim or they aren't, you know, you know, the blame game that kids get into blame, blame, blame. It's like, no, you, you know, Mm -hmm. you are fully, you know, I see kids that, um, it's like they, especially kids that are about to turn 18. It's like, they want, they think, oh, I'm 18. I can do whatever I want. And it's like, well, you know, yeah, you're 18. You can vote. You could go sign up for the army. But like, right. there's not a lot that changes if you're still living in your parents' house and they're still financially supporting you. And so what does 18 mean? You know, it doesn't mean that much. It just means, you know, there's more, maybe more consequences. You're you're going to be looked at more as an adult. And so there's no... I guess what I'm trying to say is with freedom comes responsibility. So as, as you become more of an adult, right? The, the, the mm-hmm. responsibilities ratchet up more. Yeah. I so appreciate what you were just naming about responsibility and freedom being in relationship with each other. I think this is another thing that people get confused about. They think that like freedom's over here and responsibility is over here. They're separate. No one can see me. This is a podcast. I'm suggesting that freedom's on one side and responsibility's on the other side. And they want to, you know, they think they're turning 18 and they can reject all of the responsibility now and enjoy the sweet, sweet freedom of no responsibility, which isn't realistic. That is, that isn't, that isn't how life actually is. Responsibility and freedom have an interdependent relationship with each other. You need to be responsible to maintain your freedom. You know, adults in the world, I mean, your speeding example is a good one. We could use any sort of example. If there are boundaries and consequences, then choosing to exercise the kind of fanciful responsibility, less freedom should result in consequences and a loss of those freedoms. Whereas responsibly honoring boundaries and maintaining limits is how you maintain your access to that amount of freedom. But there's definitely confusion around that. Um, And I was confused about that at 18 as well. I definitely went through a phase upon turning 18 of I don't have to listen to anyone anymore and I can do whatever I want. And I did continue living in my mother's house and eating her food for probably about six months post that decision in my mind before that was not sustainable. So then I did leave and learned what it was like to actually provide for myself. One other thought on that, you know, I see a lot of kids today, they're like, oh, I'm 18, I can do what I want, I don't need a curfew. But then it's like, wake me up in the morning. Can you make my doctor's appointment for me? Oh, here's my laundry, right? So it's like, they're not connecting the dots. So it's like, if we want, if kids want independence, guess what? Independence means you get up in the morning. Independence means you do your own laundry. Independence means, right? And this is where we have to start handing responsibilities to children before 18. And that's Mm -hmm. actually empowerment that they know how to live right. their life. They know how to be self-sufficient. So, Right. Well, and one of my other favorite things that you said in the book, and I'll try to make this the last thing for now because I know we're running out of time, was relationships involve two people. 
And I think that whole idea of being aware of and held accountable to how your behavior impacts others and how their behavior impacts you, it's a two-way street, right? And so in the old adult-centered experiences where it wasn't a two-way street, we learned one-way street relationships. Mm. And then we flip-flopped it into a one-way relationship where it was child-centered. What we need to learn how to do, and what I think you and I are attempting to teach and learn and model, because I always say I teach what I need to learn. That's why I'm interested in it. So (laughs) I'm teaching it, learning it, trying to model it. Is this two-way street where there's accountability there's an awareness of and a reflection of how we're impacting each other. And, you know, I would say briefly for me, because I grew up with boundaries that were enforced violently, and then I realized I didn't want to be violent, but I didn't know how to create, uphold, maintain a boundary otherwise, because I hadn't learned that yet. So then I didn't I was too permissive I didn't have I went from you know enforcing boundaries with violence to no boundaries to learning how to create and maintain boundaries with the kind of gentle kind strength that a mature adult who steps into their power in the way you're describing because we have a complicated relationship with the word power right we don't want to overpower or have power over because that's oppressive and tyrannical and so sometimes we overcompensate by just giving our power away yep. to, to our children or to whomever. What do you want? I'll give it to you. What should I do? You tell me. What do you want for breakfast? How you can have anything you want? What do you, you know? And that's not healthy either. That's not, that's not the two-way street. That's not healthy interdependence. And that's not teaching children how to respectfully be in relationship with other humans, starting with us. And so I just love how you spoke to, you know, relationships involve two people, both sides. And in a family, it could be more than two. But I think you can, you know, expand that outward to include multiple people. So on that note, is there are, are there any final things you would like to say to leave our listeners with in relation to this conversation that I am incredibly grateful for? <laughs> yeah, I think I really like a point you've been bringing up throughout the talk is this idea of balance. And I think that um, absolutely we've had the pendulum swing, right. From, from right. Kids are, should be seen and not heard to like all of a sudden the toddler's feelings run the home. And, and I think we, we, it's finding the balance in the middle. Another example I like to give is I think of myself or my generation, you know, we wanted our parents approval, right. And what Mm -hmm. do we want today? We want our children's approval. Mm-hmm. We, you know, mm-hmm. and I see this over and over. It's like parents will only hold a consequence if their child agrees with it because the child will be like, uh, oh, well, yeah. that doesn't work. Uh-huh. Or I can't do that. And the parents change. They've given so uh-huh. much power to the child. They want, it's almost like we want our kids to validate us and, and approve of us, right? Mm-hmm. Versus just knowing we have a natural authority to raise our children and listen to our instincts and our intuition and our, right? I mean, even, even to things like my child wants to do drugs or smoke pot and it's normal. Should, you know, it's like they've lost touch with, well, what well, do you think they should use drugs? You know, mm-hmm. because we've become so pleasing and so, um, you know, permissive, I guess, in some ways, so, you know, it, because right. we're looking to get our emotional needs met from our children, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that, Yes, it is such a journey. And, and it is like, you know, the word that comes to me too, sometimes it's like being warriors, we have to kind of step into that, like, you know, it's kind of a Buddhist word too, like stepping into our warrior yes. power, where, you know, we, we are powerful. And, you know, we are their guardians, right? You know, um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, I know I give a lot of metaphors, but the other one that's popping up in my head that I use sometimes is, you know, if we think about our children as like, um, like a seedling, right? So, so mm-hmm. we're we're planting the seedling, and we get to watch over this tree for eighteen years, right? Legally, you know, we get to watch over this mm-hmm. tree for eighteen years, and we're gonna, um, you know, give it the right amount of water and sun and fertilize it, and we get to watch it grow, right? But I see some parents, you know, it's almost as if, you know, they're fourteen, and we let them decide 
right? So they're mm-hmm. they're eating junk food all day, or they're playing video games all day, or maybe they're, they're maybe they're vaping. I mean, who who knows, right? And so some of the like some right. of the like leaves are or the branches are dying, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, the way we want to think about it is that going to be a solid tree at eighteen? Like, because eighteen, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean we're still parents, of course, after eighteen, but just that metaphor, we're guardians right. till eighteen. You know, we want to have a really sturdy tree. Right. And mm-hmm. so we get to say, you know, no, we're not having sugar or no tech. This is the tech limit. We get to have those boundaries. And I just want to empower parents that to listen to your instincts, to listen to what's right, what you want for your child, you know, not just healing what you didn't get, but looking at the child in front of you. And what does the child in front of you want? Or sorry, what does the child mm-hmm. in front of you need? You know, even asking kids to do right. an extracurricular. You know, sometimes we give them way too much choice. And I say, totally valid to say you have to do one extracurricular, at, you know, during the school year or each semester or mm-hmm. whatever. It doesn't mean they can just go to school and then play video games. You know, we can say whether it's a sport, a club, something, right? We want, we can, we can require healthy activities. We can have that, these boundaries and this integrity as parents, because guess what? We're, we're the guardians. And I sometimes we think of guardian as like a legal term, but I actually like that term because it means we get to kind of guard their growth, right? Thinking about that tree growing. And, um, and so, yeah, we don't want some of the, some of the, you know, branches to die off, but before 18, you know, we want them to be strong. And so then we know it's, it's gonna, it's gonna be okay. The tree's gonna be okay after 18. There, there's enough stability there and strength there. And so we have to step into our power. Being guardians is not us being a tyr- tyrannical, right? It's us providing support. Mm-hmm. We're there to provide support. We're there to, you know, d- you know, sometimes I say hold the container for their growth. Right. And they may be unhappy with it. Sometimes they may not like us and that's valid. Let them be angry. Feelings are okay. Most of us are angry with our parents at some point. So we have to hold space and let them know mm-hmm. it's okay to be upset at me if you don't like my rule. And I'm happy to listen. It doesn't mean you can be disrespectful to me, but you can be angry with me and I will listen right. and I will thank you for sharing because your, your feelings matter to me. And so it's just stepping into that power a little bit and knowing that, um, that you can, you know, hold these boundaries. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to just kind of add one more nuance to what you were just saying, because we talk in conscious parenting about trying to avoid control and it's tricky, right? Because when you were just talking about requiring extracurriculars, I hear the like forcing, controlling, oh no, is that, is that too much? But then we also don't want to go to the other extreme of neglecting and like unearned freedom where like you described, if they either go to school and play video games all day or, you know, whatever the case may be, and we're observing the child in front of us and feeling like, is this really the healthiest, best situation for them? Is this, is this creating the tree that I want to create? But we can kind of assess and, you know, see what the situation is. Because if you have a child who just wants to play video games all the time, and that's feeling like a negative or a not healthy thing, then of course, we wouldn't want that. But we could also imagine a child who wants to do something else. I mean, I guess if you're including in extracurriculars, things that the school provides or things that might be provided elsewhere. You know, if you have a child that's really into horseback riding and that's not provided by the school, but they're doing that. And I'm assuming that's, that's not what you meant that, you know, no, I'm going to force you to pick one of the school's activities because I decided that's what a good tree needs (laughs) versus, you know, oh, you want to do horseback riding, but that's not at your school, but it's over here. And if we can make it work as a family, because it's a two way street, right? I'm not just going to go, okay, even if that doesn't work for me, I'll do it anyway. But I also wouldn't, there's, there can be negotiation. I mean, I think that I, the way I view it is, um, I think sometimes we, I use the word choice instead of control. So you can have an expectation that your child do an extracurricular. That could be anything. I just mean extracurricular, meaning outside of school. So it could be a job. It could be horseback riding. It could be swim lessons. It could be joining a a club at your school. It's just because we know Mm -hmm. there's learning that happens through I mean, let's face it too, with this virtual world we're in, right? Through, through, mm-hmm. right? Through being in these other contexts right. and other activities. And 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, some kids are like, no, I don't want to do it. I want to stay comfortable all the time. So we're asking kids to kind of be uncomfortable and to do something mm-hmm. out of their box. But we we can say you have a choice, you know, you pick one, but the expectation is that you're doing want- something. And if you choose not to, mm-hmm. there's no video games after school. Or, or something like, so we can, again, it's choice-based. It's not control-based, but that doesn't mean we don't have mm-hmm. expectations or boundaries. You know, just like we don't have candy for dinner, right? Or whatever, right? So so again, we get to nurture right. our children and that means we can have these boundaries. I don't think of it as control. I think control is you have to do this one thing I want you to do. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's choice-based, but we're providing structure, right? Just like school structure, mm-hmm. we were, we're providing some structure that we think is going to help that tree grow and give that tree more experiences and more re- resourcefulness and um, what I call internal resources, right? To navigate life. And so we, we get to do that. So. So is there anything else you want to add before we officially close? No, I just thank you so much for having me. And it's been a an exciting conversation. And I think the world of the conscious parenting training. So it's exciting to know that you've had that and that you see parallels and to the stuff I'm talking about. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this incredible episode with Chrissy Positek about brave parenting and all the ways in which we can Make sure that we're not falling prey to the parenting temptation to lay leather all over the world for our children, but rather consciously and intentionally helping and supporting them as they learn how to build their own moccasins so that they can travel the world from an empowered, autonomous place. I I just found talking with Chrissy so helpful and interesting and I had so many more questions and I really can't recommend the book highly enough, Brave Parenting by Chrissy Positek. Please check it out if you struggle at all like me with creating and maintaining boundaries and helping to guide and empower your children when it's so much easier sometimes to take over, fix, try to control, do things for them. This is a struggle that I I still am wrestling with at times. And I just found the book so helpful. There are so many practical examples and so many things that we didn't get into in this conversation that I am recommending this book to all of my clients and I recommend it to you as well. And if you found this episode helpful, please feel free to share it with anyone else who you think might benefit. We are here to help offer tools and tips for this parenting journey. And we want everyone to benefit as much as we are from the things that we are sharing. So thank you. And until next time. Thank you.